Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. John chapter 9, verses 35 to 41. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 9, starting at 35. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. Jesus heard that they had put him out, and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. And those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we are here to hear it and to hear your word preached. Lord, we ask that you would use it, that you would penetrate hearts and minds, Father, by uh, this preaching of your word. And so, Lord, bless my meditations and thoughts, bless all of our thoughts and meditations. May they be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Lord, strengthen us, give us focus, help us to pay attention, because this is your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. So we're back in the passage. I mean, John 9 is one big uh, scene. And so we're back in that passage we began last week. Jesus had healed a man who was born blind. And the people were in awe of that. He, He had never seen. And that man, right after he was healed, was then required to do battle with these unbelieving Pharisees. They were upset for what reason? Well, the reason they've been upset before, which is that he was healed on the Sabbath day. And so they resort um, to little kid kind of arguments, you know, even denying that he had been really healed. Well, how'd he heal you? Well, you, you, you weren't even blind anyway, you know. The blind man holds his own, though, doesn't he? He does very well in the face of these religious leaders. He answers their questions with simple answers, but also goads them, especially after they ask him a second time, you know, how Jesus had opened his eyes. And they, he says, if I told you already and you did not listen, why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples also Do you? Which is a wonderful response. And that sends them into a frenzy. 
right? They are angry that he would be sarcastic with them. So what did the heel... I think this passage and the whole passage, especially this conclusion, as I, you know, as I've looked at it the last couple of weeks, is really about what is... What does it mean to have a a true knowledge of Christ? And so what did the healed man know about Jesus? He he didn't know much. He says says these things. He, he, um, He reveals that he knows these things. He knows that his name is Jesus, verse 11. So he knows his name. He knows his, uh, he knows that at least. He knows that Jesus anointed his eyes, he washed, and he began to see for the first time in his life, verses 11 and 15 of, of chapter 9. So he had, he had that experience with Jesus. Jesus told him to do something, he did it, there were results. Um, three, he believes Jesus is a prophet. Look at verse 17, right? The, the Pharisees ask him, and he says, well, he's a prophet. He... Verse 25, he doesn't know whether Jesus is a sinner or not. He doesn't answer their, you know, that question. He says, I don't know whether or not he's a sinner, but here's what he did. And uh, implies that, he at least implies that he wasn't a sinner because uh, he had power. And then fifth, he knows that Jesus has disciples who are following him. Verse 27 um, so there are people who are following after Jesus. He's now seen that. And then finally, he knows that Jesus is from God because he healed him. That's verses 30 through 33. So to boil that down, what this man knows at this point, uh, who received that miraculous healing on that day around 30 A.D., knows these things about the man who healed him. He is, his name is Jesus. He had healing power. He is a prophet. He has disciples. He's from God. That's what he knows about him. Now, that's quite a bit to know about Jesus. It's a lot. It's quite a bit. Many people today will, uh, who claim to know Jesus wouldn't know that much about him. Right, may not even know what it means to be a prophet, what it means to be from God. Right, so so many people claim to know Jesus, but um, where do they get their knowledge of Him? Right, where do they where do they what are their sources of knowledge for coming to understand who Jesus is? Are American Christians known for their knowledge of God's Word? Just contemplate silently. I'm not asking for answers this morning. Isn't it true that there are, there's a kind of civic religion in America, right, that has, has crafted a Jesus that is completely divorced from the source of wisdom about Jesus, which is the Word of God? There's like an American Jesus. I remember when I was, uh, this just popped into my brain, I don't know why I'm going to bring it up, but here it is. 
I remember when I was uh, going to different schools to, for, um, to find out what graduate school I was going to go to for music. And I went, uh, went to the Cleveland Institute and uh, interviewed with a man um, that I never, ever should have wanted to study composition with. But I went into his office, and his whole office was filled with kitsch. And I mean that in the official way. Kitsch is um, advertising. And icon, pop culture icons, right? Marilyn Monroe, um, you know, just all kinds of, just covered wall-to-wall ceiling. Um, and he had like a big cutout of presumably what, what um, he thought was was Jesus, or what Jesus looked like, but it was the Anglo, you know, glowing um, surfer dude Jesus, right? Um, and that's, that is sort of an analogy for the, like, the depth of the, the American church's understanding of who Jesus is, you know, a co-pilot, a buddy, a friend in the storm, but certainly not almighty God, eternal, begotten of the Father before all ages. But there's, there's this civic religion in America that has crafted a Jesus that is completely divorced from the Word. Now, paganism is on the rise in our context, and they want nothing to do with Jesus Christ, right? They just um, they're hostile toward Jesus Christ. But there is still a large portion of this country that claims Jesus Christ and knows nothing about him. There is a large portion of the conservative, patriotic, apple pie, guns, and God crowd that claim Jesus. Our country has a long history of invoking God, but only insofar as that God fits in with our political identity. That was the deist game in the early years of this country. Right? What did Thomas Jefferson dislike in Scripture? He didn't like Jesus doing anything powerful and miraculous. He didn't like Jesus doing anything supernatural. He didn't like any talk of Jesus as divine, as God. He didn't like the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He didn't like um, some of the moral teachings of Jesus. And his legacy has carried on in the American culture and church to today. It took a while, but the church in the early 20th century finally caught up to Jefferson when they rejected the supernatural and the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. That was the liberal movement in the church, early 20th century. But even within the politically conservative movement today, there is still a tendency, and it's more pronounced than ever, actually, to invoke the name of Jesus without any intent of acknowledging Jesus as God Almighty. Political conservatives are willing to invoke the name of Jesus, but they do so in the same way Jefferson would, as a philosopher, as a wise man, or as most likely the embodiment of some of the principles that tend toward what they consider to be a virtuous society. 
but certainly not as God. They will take his name in vain because... And, and they will mouth it, but will not, most certainly will not honor him as God and devote their lives to his commands. And so, J. Gresham Machen in Christianity and Liberalism put it this way. Listen to this. He said, The truth is that the life purpose of Jesus discovered by modern liberalism is not the life purpose of the real Jesus, but merely represents those elements in the teaching of Jesus, isolated and misinterpreted, which happen to agree with the modern program. It is not Jesus, then, who is the real authority, but the modern principle by which the selection within Jesus' recorded teachings has been made. Certain isolated ethical principles of the Sermon on the Mount are accepted, not at all because they are the teachings of Jesus, but because they agree with modern ideas. That's the conservative movement in America. Yeah, forget about the liberals. They did it too. But the conservatives major on this, right? Invoking the name of Jesus and of religion and, and yet having no, no intent to ever acknowledge him as God. People use Jesus all the time, liberals and conservatives, without once considering that Jesus taught much more than principles that fit or comport with modern ideas. Jesus taught more than principles. He taught that he was the Savior. He taught that he was sent from the Father. He taught us that human nature is corrupt, that sin is real, right? That God is holy and wrathful against sin. And that faith in him saves. He taught that he was Almighty God. And no one will be saved who denies that Jesus is Almighty God. If you believe that Jesus is not Almighty God, you will die in your sins and you will suffer in hell eternally. He taught that he was one with the Father, one with the Spirit, which means that man does not place upon him definitions and fit him into political and cultural boxes that, that please them. No, Jesus defines reality. He defines reality because he made reality. He defines reality. Man must come to terms with Jesus. Man must bow his knees to him. And another way to put this is this. You can't have Jesus and your own terms. And that is what so many people try to do today. That is what so many people have tried to do in ages past. That is what we do so often when we just don't want to repent of our sins. And so all, all of this to say, many people claim some knowledge of Jesus. They claim they know Jesus, but they are not even close to saying as much as this healed man said. They're not even close to the, the, his, his doctrine so far, right? Today, people may call Jesus a buddy, but never a prophet. 
I mean, Jesus is my co-pilot. They may call Jesus a good example, right? He's a good example. That dude was wise. He, he gave us, I mean, what tenderness, what kindness he showed to other people. What a good example. But they will never call him a man sent from God. They claim far less and assume that such knowledge saves them. They are good, right? They, they like Jesus insofar as they are allowed to define him. They like Jesus insofar as he meets their felt needs. They like Jesus insofar as he, he represents conservative principles and stands as an antidote to the poison of, of liberal delusions. Is that your Jesus? Is your Jesus like just so that you can be angry at liberals? Ugh. It's disgusting. That is no Jesus. You know, people like Jesus because of what he's come to represent in our cultural moment. Jesus transcends every cultural moment ever. But do they know Jesus Christ? Do they love him? Are they willing to take up his cross and follow him? Right? Many say they cling to Jesus as their hope of heaven, but their lives are, are examined and it becomes clear that Jesus is just a principle to them and not God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I mean, if you come out of this sermon thinking that I like Jesus' principles, but don't think Jesus is God, I'll kill myself. If you like Jesus' principles and don't acknowledge him as God, you are not saved. You will spend eternity in hell. Now, in comparison with the Pharisees, this man born blind knew much about Jesus. He knew much. He knew more than the Pharisees knew. He said he's a prophet. He's from God. He has real power to heal. But even that knowledge was not enough to save that man. That is not enough knowledge for this man to be saved, the man that was healed. Um, That is the point of our passage this morning. Look what he says. After Jesus learned that the man had been put out of the synagogue, wonderfully, Jesus goes and finds the man. Goes and tracks him down, finds him, and then asks him this question. You know, Jesus wasn't one for small talk. Praise the Lord. Right? Do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe in the Son of Man? Now think about that question, dear brothers and sisters. If Jesus were simply a political man or a man of ideas or uh, the representation of conservative ideals or, or an embodiment of philosophical constructs, he would not ask him, do you believe in the Son of Man? 
Do you believe in this man? What does Jesus mean by believe? And what does he mean when he speaks of the Son of Man? Well, take the second question first. When Jesus speaks of the Son of Man, which I believe is the name he uses for himself more frequently than any other, he's tapping into the, to the words of the Holy Spirit found in the book of Daniel. Right? He is taking the passage in Daniel and applying it to himself. He is the fulfillment of this prophecy After speaking of the rise and fall of dominions, Daniel sees this, I kept looking in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion, glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. That's what Jesus is saying in talking of the Son of Man. He's making reference to that prophecy in Daniel and all that eternal, glorious kingdom. Right In speaking of himself as the Son of Man, Jesus is, is claiming divinity and dominion over the earth. He is the king of an everlasting kingdom. He, in other words, is the Messiah. Jesus is now opening this man's spiritual eyes. He's he's still blind, you see. This man who has been healed is still blind. And Jesus is going to show him who he is, or at least begin to show him who he is. Now, what does Jesus mean by believe? Do you believe in the Son of Man? And this is very simple. Scripture, again, lays it out for us. Not everyone is saved, but only those who believe in Jesus. What does that mean? Well, it, it means more than knowledge that this blind man demonstrated up to this point. It means more than Jefferson's purported knowledge of God. It means more than having a head knowledge of Jesus Christ, right? Like facts about Jesus Christ. Believing in the Son of Man consists in three parts. That knowledge, assent, and trust. Those three parts. Most importantly, trust. Right? You must have knowledge of God. You must believe those things about God are the truth. And this is what separates the believer from the unbeliever at this point. The child of the devil and the child of God, you must trust in Christ. You must do more than even assent to the truth. You must commit yourself to him and place your entire future in his hands. You must rest in him. Our knowledge of God must move from the head to the heart. Trust comes when knowledge settles in the heart and moves our will and our affections and and entire lives to be devoted to Christ. Christ is then to us a friend and a savior and our God. Much more than simply a dispenser of wise sayings. much more than Confucius, right? Much more than Einstein, 
The Son of God at that point then occupies the very center of all of our thoughts, emotions, affections, and actions. And Scripture says if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved for with a heart a person believes resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Romans 10. His response is, is wonderful and devoid of any pride, right? The, the man born blind responds to Jesus. It's wonderful and humble. He's teachable in his response. Teachable. Right? He says, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? He still doesn't know who Jesus is. He still doesn't know who the man standing before him is. Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Now, if the Holy Spirit is at work in someone's heart, that is the question that they will get to. If not, they will continue to throw up little objections, like, if I believe in Jesus, will I have to give up all the things that I enjoy right now. If I believe in Jesus, will I have to suddenly apologize to everybody I've ever honked my horn at? If I believe in Jesus, will I be telling all of my friends that they're not saved? If I believe in Jesus, will, will, you know, will I this and that and this and that? And all these objections start flying up and the consequences of believing in Jesus just seem too much. But this man, he simply says, tell me who he is so that I may believe in him. The Holy Spirit works that softness into the man's heart so that not considering the worldly consequences, he cares for the first time more for the truth and for eternity and for his soul. He, he cares more for that than all the other things. This man is beginning to see, isn't he? The light is beginning to break through, not merely to his eyes, but to his, his soul. And then this incredible revelation from Jesus, nothing like it in all the other interactions Jesus had, except for when he interacted with the woman at the well, right, where he was very explicit. Jesus says, you have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. (laughs) The man responds, confesses, and then worships Jesus. The man responds, confesses, then worships Jesus. He's converted, right? Calvin and Ryle amazingly say, not so fast. And this was shocking to me, right? Calvin and Ryle at this point are like, hold the horses, hold up. Ryle says this, we must not, however, estimate too highly the extent of this man's faith. At any rate, it had the germ and nucleus of an all-justifying faith about it, a belief in our Lord as Messiah. That's what he says. He's like, okay, hang on. And then Calvin Calvin says this and goes the same way. And, And I'm reading this and I'm like, 
I, I'm ready to dance a jig and proclaim this man a savior. And Calvin's like, Err. Calvin says, by these words of Christ, the blind man could not be carried higher than to a very small and cold portion of faith. For Christ does not mention, now listen to this, Christ does not mention his power or the reason why he was sent by the Father or what he has brought to men. But what principally belongs to faith is to know that by the sacrifice of his death, atonement has been made for our sins and we are reconciled to God. That his resurrection was a triumph over vanquished death. That we are renewed by his spirit in order that being dead to the flesh and to sin, we may live to righteousness. That he is the only mediator. That the spirit is the earnest of our adoption. In short, that in him is found everything that belongs to eternal life. But the evangelist either does not relate the whole of the conversation which Christ had with him, or he only means that the blind man professed his attachment to Christ so that henceforth he began to be one of his disciples. For my own part, I have no doubt that Jesus intended to be acknowledged by him as the Christ, that from this beginning of faith, he might afterwards lead him forward to a more intimate knowledge of him. That's kind of, I mean, are you guys listening? Are you with me? That's kind of crazy, isn't it? It's like, well, hold on, he doesn't know about the atonement and the resurrection and this and that doctrine and substitution and, I mean, just a whole, whole list. <clears throat> and then Calvin says this, and then it may be asked, did the blind man honor or worship Christ as God? The word which the evangelist employs, prosecunisai, means nothing more than to expe express respect and homage by bending the knee or by other signs. For my part, certainly, I think that it denotes something rare and uncommon, namely that the blind man gave far more honor to Christ than to an ordinary man or even to a prophet, and yet I do not think that at that time he had made much progress as to know that Christ was God manifested in the flesh. What then is meant by worship? The blind man, convinced that Jesus was the Son of God, nearly lost the command of himself and in rapturous admiration bowed down before him. Now, isn't it interesting that these men, Ryle and Calvin, read this passage that way? They are not willing to go all the way and say that this man was now a child of God, I believe, and they bowed down and worshiped, and they're not willing to go there and say, he's a child of God, he's a true Christian. It kind of shocks us. It shocked me. He confesses with his mouth and even bows down before him. What more could he possibly do to prove faith? Why are they so hard on this guy and not willing to proclaim this man a member of, of God's household? Well, oh man, I think it's the same reason I'm skeptical when someone after a traumatic experience or even a miraculous experience quickly professes faith and exalts in worship. After they go through some difficulty and immediately come to Christ. Uh, you guys may think I'm gnarly and, and crunchy like Calvin, but I'm skeptical of anybody making a quick profession of faith. Especially, I mean, any kind of quick profession, but especially in light 
of some traumatic or miraculous experience. Um, and this is the thing. The Christian life is not merely one of instantaneous change. It can be. But it is not always that way. The Christian life is a slow burn of faith and fruitfulness. Right? And so, this is why Jesus says, it is those who endure to the end who will be saved. And Jesus taught us the parable of the sower. And this is the main point of the parable of the sower, isn't it? The parable undergirds what I'm saying here. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy and yet has no firm root in himself but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And then finally, the last one, and one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word, understands it, and then what? What comes next? He bears fruit. Right? Who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some hundredfold, some thirty, or some sixty, and some thirty. Notice that it says of the one that the word falls on and, and sprouts up in good soil, he indeed bears fruit. You will, and, and Jesus says, You will know them by their fruits. Good faith produces good fruit. So, why do we have a tendency to look at someone's initial profession and then just assume they're good, right? Isn't that what we do? That's what we do. Someone makes, someone, we, we have very little information about, but they've made a quick profession to you and, and you, you want to run them right straight to, to heaven, right? Well, there are a lot of reasons why we do this. We're lazy, and we just don't want to do the hard work of discipleship, right? Discipleship. We don't want to do that. We want to, you're good, I'm moving on, right? It's not like you're, perhaps the Holy Spirit is working at you. Let's study scripture. Let's have you in my home. Let's talk about that thing you did. Let's begin to work through these issues and we're just lazy. We don't want to disciple people. Um, it's dirty. It's tiring. So we proclaim someone in the kingdom so that we don't have to give them more. Second, we are, we are products of a, a generation of decisional regenerationists. You believe, boom, you're in. That's all there is. Regeneration comes by decision. And once you make that decision, you're good and we can move on. That's terrible. Say the prayer and you're in. Right? It's the American fast food sort of mentality. What a tragedy when it's applied to heaven and hell. Third, we're fearful that 
looking for fruit will reveal things about those we love the most. That in particular, they do not bear any fruit of faith. We do not want to see that our children or our parents or friends may profess faith, but they have no good works, no regard for the Word of God, right? No depth at all. We simply will look for the littlest bits of possible faith and then bank on those things at their funeral, proclaiming them to be Christians and lying. Proclaiming them to be Christians, rejoicing in the presence of Christ, though they never really did so at any time in their lives. They did have a Bible, you know. Sat in some shelf somewhere in their house. And they did tell me, you know, they, t- they told me that they prayed for me. You know? And so we ease our consciences by searching for fruit in the midst of a mound of dust. Fourth, we have the same standard for ourselves that we have for others. Very low standards. Very low standards. Why? I mean, why would we want to raise standards for others and then raise them for us too? No, we, let's just keep the standards low for us and we'll keep them low for others. We hope that our prayerlessness and faithlessness and laziness and distraction and devotedness to idols will be seen by God as prayerfulness and faithfulness and industry and, and devotedness to God. That's what, that's what we hope. And we hope perhaps um, someone you know, we'll, we'll mistake them for that. We presume upon God and relegate self-examination to a morbid sort of Christianity that doesn't understand grace. We do it for our own souls, so why wouldn't we do it for everybody else? We lower our standards. I think we could come up with a number of other reasons why the measured approach of Ryle and Calvin bothers us, why we are, are sort of scandalized that they would be cautious of calling this man a Christian at this point. He says, I believe in falls and worships. And they're like, hmm. And we just don't care about fruit today. Right? We don't care about fruit in the Christian life. We, we do truly live in an era of cheap grace. Remember how Bonhoeffer defines cheap grace? The preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. That about sums it up, doesn't it? Cheap grace makes of everyone a Christian. Cheap grace makes of everyone a Christian, right? And Calvin and Ryle, living in a different era, don't make that mistake as is evidenced with their view on this passage. And perhaps perhaps they err in the other direction. I don't know, but it's helpful for us.
that they go that direction. Honestly, coming to Christ is very simple, right? And I don't want, I don't want in what I'm saying to say that to, to make salvation seem like it's works righteousness and that you've got to work, 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 work. But the fact of the matter is, is coming to Christ is very simple. Believe in your heart, confess with your mouth. Not heaping on works, but show forth your faith. And that is done through the work of a lifetime. Show forth your faith because, Scripture says, faith without works is dead. It's dead. Was this man a believer at this point? We don't know. If we were to look at the rest of his life, what would it reveal? Would it reveal faith in Christ? Would it reveal devotion to Him? Would it reveal a growth in holiness, an increasing dedication to God? Would it? Would it, would it reveal a life of, of worship? That would tell us more. That would tell us more. Now that leaves us with what Jesus says in 39 through 41. Stick with me here. Stand up if you have to. Open your Bibles. Look at verses 39 to 41. Grab some coffee. He responds to the profession of faith and the worship of this man. And notice that he doesn't tell the man to stop worshiping him. Right? The apostles have people worship them and they're like, yeah, we're just men. Don't do that. Right? But God... The son accepts this worship, does not correct the man, the man. But he responds to this profession of faith, this worship of the man, and says, For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Oh, man. Well, I thought Jesus didn't come into the world to judge. Right? John three sixteen and 17. I did not come into this world to judge the world, but to be the Savior of the world. He did not come as judge. He will come that way. His second coming, He will come as judge. But He came as Savior, but the, the, the truth of Christ and what He taught will always be a judgment. It will always divide. It will always lead to the division of people. It, it will reveal them as uh, people's actions as, um, as he sees them, right? And so this is what happens when the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached in places. It opens the eyes of the ignorant and then it shuts the eyes of those who believe themselves to see. It opens the blind eyes and then it actually acts to shut the eyes of those who think they're seeing but are not. Ryle writes, And is not this judgment a common consequence of Christ's gospel coming to a place where a people for the first time, minds previously quite dead, receive sight? Minds previously self-satisfied and proud of their own light are given over to utter darkness and left behind. Those who once saw not see, those who fancied themselves clear-sighted are found blind. The same fire which melts wax hardens the clay. 
And I would say, you, you all have experienced it. Light is blinding at points. You know, you're driving along and suddenly the sun is setting and it's right in front of you down the road, right? And you can't see. You are blinded to the cars that are around you, right? And that same light which illumines the sky so that you can see everything around you is that which is blinding you. Same with Jesus Christ. He is light, but his light leads to, for some to see who couldn't and he blinds others by the radiance of his light as a judgment. Jesus' final statement is not to say that um, he, well, he goes on. The passage then closes with the Pharisees getting Jesus' drift and reacting again indignantly, right? They, they, we're not blind too, are we? And then Jesus says this final statement, and it's not meant to say that ignorant people are not guilty. They too bear the sin of Adam and their own sin, but it is to say that one who is ignorant is in a sense less guilty than one who has studied the scripture and rejected the truth that was set before them, right? Second Peter 2, for it would have been better for them had they not known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. What Jesus is saying, the Pharisees are experts in the scriptures, all of which testify about him, and they're saying that they see and they're going to be annihilated because of their knowledge. All right, so what do we take away from this passage? What did we take home? One, examine yourselves. Do not be deluded about your own faith and make yourself content with a half faith or a quarter faith. Examine yourself. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? Two, avoid the error of being a de facto universalist. Accepting the thinnest level of evidence that someone believes in Christ so that you can ease your own conscience. Make disciples. If you see any inkling of faith, make disciples, get your hands dirty, lead them on, bring people along. Don't just say, oh, shoo, aunt so-and-so is good. She said once she prayed for me. Third, the light of the world illumines eyes, the light of the world blinds eyes. All of humanity will divide between those who are blind, ignorant, dumb, and then those and then, and then could see, and those who think they are seeing, knowledgeable and smart, who suffer from blindness, entire blindness. So the question is, which are you? Which are you? Do you claim to see and yet you're blind, or do you uh, know your, your blindness that Christ has taken from you and illuminated? Amen?